When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. It's January 2003. Bill Murray is on a plane hunting down a new top secret contact. The first stop sort of on that trip was Kuala Lumpur because he was giving a speech at the Organization of Islamic Conference in Malaysia. Bill is a senior officer in the CIA, and in 2003, he's the station chief in Paris, one of the top men in Europe, and he's on an urgent mission. He has to find this high-level source, and so he arrives in Kuala Lumpur. And I just missed him. No luck. By the time you take a flight from Washington to Japan to you have to transit through Singapore and then up to Malaysia and etc. I got there before he left, but I was never able to get into the hotel that he was in. Then he left shortly after I arrived. I think the next morning or something, he left. The source was off, this time to Jordan. And by the time I arrived in Jordan, in the middle of the night, people met me at the airport and said, he's gone on to Cairo. So Bill gets another flight to Cairo. And arrived there again in the middle of the night and tried to figure out how I was going to get in contact with this guy. And he's in his hotel working out how he's going to make contact with this source when he finds out that he isn't in Cairo at all. In fact, he's gone to Sharm el-Sheikh, the holiday resort on the Red Sea. And I couldn't go to Sharm el-Sheikh because it's too small. I mean, it's just too many people would have recognized me and said, what the hell's he doing here? Bill had spent too long roaming around the Middle East to be inconspicuous. And anyway, Bill is quite a conspicuous person. He's a spy, yes, but he's not exactly in the James Bond mold. He's a big man with greying hair, and unkind people might say he's just a little bit overweight. Anyway, he certainly sticks out in a crowd. So I stayed in Cairo because he was supposed to come back to Cairo. But then at the conference, one of the other Arab leaders gave him a ride, a plane ride directly back to Baghdad. So he never came back to Cairo. So I missed him. I tried very hard. At one point, I went all the way around the world in six days and 22 hours chasing him. That was February of 2003. February 2003. As Bill was desperately chasing his source around the Middle East, 
The US President George W. Bush and the UK Prime Minister Tony Blair were calling each other night after night. It is time for us to deal with Saddam Hussein. It's time for us to secure the peace. Discussing what they should do about the President of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. And delivering us safety from what I genuinely believe to be the security threat of the early 21st century. And now is not the time to waver, now is the time to see it through. The drumbeat of war was sounding louder. They're warned of mines, of suicide bombers. Men may die, says their commanding officer. As people protested right across the world, from London to New York to Sydney. Without doubt, one of the largest gatherings, let alone protest rallies, Who is in English history. You also can cast your vote against this war. Force that can stop. But Bill, like those protesters out on the street, still thought there might be a way of stopping the war. Bill suspected that his source had a powerful piece of intelligence. And if it was true, it could undermine the reasoning behind the war that Bush and Blair were planning to fight. I thought it was pretty important. Uh, you know, there might be war war decisions made on the on the basis of the intelligence that came out of this. So I thought it was pretty important to pursue this in every way that I could. Bill was on a mission to find the truth, to work out what was really going on inside Iraq. We cite John 23, I guess it is. And you should know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's our motto. That's what we live for. That's what we're supposed to be doing. I'm David Dimbleby, and from something else, this is The Fault Line, Bush, Blair, and Iraq. Over eight episodes, I'm going to tell the story of how and why we went to war in Iraq. A war that lasted for 10 years and led to the deaths of over 200 British soldiers, over 4,000 American troops, and almost a quarter of a million Iraqis. A war that threw the Middle East and the world into chaos. In some ways, the Iraq war is a litmus test. Were you for it or were you against it? One of us in this race led the opposition to the war in Iraq. You're looking at it. Another candidate voted for the war in Iraq. But it's also become a lesson in the ways the institutions that are meant to bind our society together can fail, whether it's the political class that drove the war. This is George W. Bush, the president of the United States. At this moment, the regime of Saddam Hussein is being removed from power, and a long era of fear and cruelty is ending. Those parts of the media that weren't questioning enough in the run-up to it, or the intelligence services that got it so wrong. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. We believe that our world today is unique as an age of lies and mistrust. I think the media is among the most dishonest groups of people I've ever met. But did the events of 17 years ago set the stage for the world we live in now?
In February of 2003, as Bill Murray was flying around the world looking for his source, it still wasn't certain whether America would invade Iraq and even less certain whether Britain would join in. On both sides of the Atlantic, there was heated public debate. And I had a ringside seat. I'm a journalist and TV anchor in the UK, and I've been covering world events for the BBC for four decades or more. In 2003, I was the chair of Britain's most important political debate show. It's called Question Time. It's a national debate where the public are invited in to challenge politicians and to argue with each other about the rights and wrongs of the big issues of the day. On Question Time tonight, Patricia Hewitt, Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. And in early 2003, there was only one big issue, week after week. Should we or shouldn't we support the US and go to war against Saddam? Our first question tonight, Elliot Van Emden. Now that warheads have been found in Iraq, does this give Britain and America a mandate to invade? This is tonight's news. The arguments were like none I've ever heard on the programme before. They were long and vigorous and hostile and got very heated. This was as true in Washington, where we took the show in the run-up to the war, as it was in London. These people will lie and lie and lie. They have lied for so long. There were arguments over whether Tony Blair was just George Bush's lapdog. We elected him prime minister, not vice president of the United States. <laughs> and I think... Arguments over whether this was actually not about Saddam Hussein, but really about oil. Is what America is after is control of Iraq's oil. And that is exactly what this is about. Um, there are much more dangerous threats to Britain. And then there were the weapons of mass destruction, the great unknown. But until the case is made, we believe the inspectors should be given much more time to carry on their And much work. more time okay, for Saddam no, to keep on concealing his weapons of mass the, the, destruction, which is the whole point. And it's the weapons of mass destruction that bring us back to Bill Murray and his search for the truth. Amid all the noise building on both sides of the Atlantic, his was one of the voices that wasn't heard. I'm recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, with governments around the world under fire for ignoring the advice of scientists and medical experts. But when, perhaps if, it ends, we'll hear the voices of those who believe they could have stopped it in its tracks if only they'd been listened to at the time, if only they'd been trusted. It's the same with the Iraq war. There were people desperately trying to tell a different story, trying to change the course of history before it was too late. Bill Murray was one of them. A CIA man through and through, he had worked in the Middle East for years, knew it inside out. And he was very good at making contact with high-level sources. In Libya, at a certain point in time, I was known as the Irish doctor, because I used to see one of the top Libyans on a regular basis right in front of his guards, and they thought I was, I was his eye doctor from, from Dublin. So in 2002, Bill was the CIA station chief in Paris. And in the spring of that year, a French official comes to him and says, We have a source here in Paris. Um, it turned out it was a Lebanese journalist who was close to the Iraqi foreign minister, Naji Sabri al-Hadithi. And this source has told the French that Naji Sabri, the Iraqi foreign minister, would like to get out of Iraq. He'd like to move his family out and defect. And we thought you might be interested in this. 
And as we'll hear later on in the series, at this point in our story, both Bush and Blair are desperate for intelligence from inside Iraq. And Bill thinks Naji Sabri, who for goodness sake is the foreign minister of Iraq, could be more reliable than some of the other sources that the CIA had come across. Well, we knew he was a very interesting person. We also knew that Saddam Hussein had killed his brother. Naji Sabri hated Saddam Hussein as a result of that incident. So we thought it was reasonable that Naji Sabri might want to get out. We also knew that Naji Sabri was not involved in or had accused of involvement in any crimes against humanity or anything else. He was not somebody who was tarred by the excesses of the Iraqi regime. So he looked like a, a pretty, an unusual person in Iraq in a position of great power and influence at, at the very top, very, very close to Saddam Hussein. And I said, yeah, of course I'm interested in this. Um, how can I get in touch with Naji Sabri? And he was told he had to go through the source. I don't want to give his name, but he was a Lebanese journalist. And so he gives his source a series of questions that he's to ask Naji Sabri. What I did is I fed him with a bunch of intelligence requirements, some of, some of which we knew the answers to, and waited to see what I got back. And what he got back was startling. The source told him that Naji Sabri was explicit. Saddam did not have the weapons of mass destruction everyone in the West said he had. They were gone, had been destroyed. This was devastating information. Because if true, it undermined the case for war that George Bush and Tony Blair were making. But when he took it to his bosses... I had all kinds of people at headquarters saying, oh, this is all bullshit. So Bill knows he's got to do more to try and confirm this piece of intelligence. And then in September, he finds out that Naji Sabri is coming to New York to make a speech at the United Nations. But how could Bill get in contact with Naji Sabri? That week was hectic in New York. That was just such a clown show. I couldn't get anywhere near him. So he thinks if I can't meet him, I'll send the Lebanese journalist, the source who's been his go-between with Sabri so far. But he needs to make absolutely sure this journalist isn't just making it up, that he's good for his word, that he actually has met Naji Sabri. And so he comes up with an idea before the meeting in New York, I had worked out with the source, with my source, that he would order a couple of suits from Naji Sabri. He had all of Naji Sabri's sizes because he'd ordered clothes for him in the past. And we had a couple of suits tailor-made in Paris, which I saw uh, beforehand. And he tells the journalist, in order to prove that you've met Naji Sabri, you must get him to wear one of the suits I had made for him. And I'll be watching when he gives his speech at the UN. Can you describe the suit to me? Uh, it was a blue, a lightish, not, 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 a, not a really dark blue, a um, little bit lighter um, suit, uh, nicely made French, French tailoring. So the day of the speech arrives and Bill is sitting in his office waiting for Naji Sabri to speak to the General Assembly. Today in New York, the Iraqi foreign minister spoke to the United Nations General Assembly. He talked about weapons inspections. Up he walks to the podium, starts talking. Mr. President, 
I would like to congratulate you on your election as a Bill looks up and there is Sabri speaking in a dull monotone. My appreciation of the United Nations. I watched it on television, it was the suit. Sabri was wearing the suit. It's not the kind of suit you get off the rack somewhere, okay? You can tell the difference between a $1,500, $2,000 suit and, a, and what the rest of us wear, okay? <laughs> Bill felt he now had the proof he needed that Sabri really had given this information to his source. And so he could now go to the Bush administration and tell them. There were no weapons of mass destruction. Um, we, I put out a long intelligence report, and I went the next day down to Washington I thought I was going to meet with the director, but by the time I got there, the director was, was in the White House, so I met with the deputy director, and we went through the information. And the deputy director says, I'll pass it to the administration, to the White House. And Bill goes back to Paris, and he hears nothing. What I do know is that the bar to get intelligence into that administration at that time that countered the idea that Saddam Hussein was, you know, a nuclear-armed monster, the bar was very high. The bar to get intelligence to them that supported the idea that Saddam Hussein was a nuclear-armed monster was very low. That's the most I can say. The White House never gets back to him. But Bill doesn't give up. And that's why he set off on the journey we heard about at the beginning, this story of flying around the Middle East. War is getting closer day by day, and still Bill is trying to find the Iraqi foreign minister, Naji Sabri, to sit down with him so he can finally prove that the case for war, built so firmly, so strongly by Bush and Blair, just might not be quite as strong as they're suggesting. In my view, this was the highest-ranking member of that administration we had ever gotten to, and it was it was worth it was worth another throw of the dice. It's always a throw of the dice, okay? Intelligence operations are always a throw of the dice, okay? It's it's a it's a gray it's a gray world. It's not a black and white world. Our world is not a black and white world. It's a very much of a gray world. So you never quite know. No. A gray world, not black and white. And this is what's so intriguing about this story. The build-up to the war in Iraq saw a struggle between the need to make public statements of certainty bold and clear-cut, and the voices behind the scenes warning that things might not be quite so straightforward. A struggle between different people with their own versions of the truth. What happens when what's being said in public doesn't reflect what's going on behind the scenes? What happens when two powerful world leaders, convinced of the rightness of what they're planning to do, set aside doubt? And how can any of us then trust what we're told? The story of how we got to war in Iraq is a story of secretive meetings behind closed doors. The two of them were going off together to the Crawford Ranch with no advisers, and off they went into the sunset. Of journalists hunting for the truth. We don't write for people who send other people's kids to war. We write for people whose kids get sent to war. 
of advisors putting their honor on the line in the service of loyalty. I said it was the lowest point in my personal and professional life, and I meant it. Of secret agents desperate to find proof before it's too late. We're the skunk at the garden party. We're always trying to tell somebody that this is reality, not that. They knew the puzzle picture they were looking for, and they cut the pieces to fit the puzzle. How about that? But at its heart, it's really the story of two men, of a prime minister and a president. It's my honor to uh, welcome the prime minister from our strongest friend and closest ally to Camp David. Two men who politically could have been enemies, but became the closest of friends. We got to know each other, and uh, as they told me, he's a pretty charming guy. He put the charm offensive on me. <laughs> and it worked. No, we're, we're delighted. Two men who decided to risk all, to put their reputations on the line in pursuit of a war that many now think of as one of the great foreign policy disasters of the past hundred years. Thank you very much, Mr. President. And, well, I was delighted to come here and... What's it like to be at the center of power, to be taking those decisions? What were the conversations going on behind closed doors in Washington and in Downing Street? Who were the people warning about the rush to war? And how did our governments get it so wrong? America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. As the host of the BBC's Question Time programme, I thought I had a pretty good insight into how the main players in London were talking about this proposed invasion of Iraq. But as for America, I wasn't quite so sure. And then, in February 2003, I got my first real glimpse of what was about to happen. It was the weekend of my younger son's birthday party, underlined in red in the diary, not to be missed. It was going to be a fancy dress party, cowboys and princesses. I remember he said he was going to go as both. 
And then a few days before the party, I was sitting at home when the phone rang. It was my producer at the BBC. Oh, good. You can see the top of my head. What's the app called? Voice app. Okay, just give me a moment. Well, I don't want to read out. This is Mark Damazer. And because we were both in lockdown when we recorded this, in fact, when we recorded this whole series... FaceTime, calendar, photos, camera. It's proving a little hard for him to find the correct recording device. Books, health, home, voice memos. Yep, Okay. Mark was the deputy head of BBC News, who rang me out of the blue that winter morning and said, Davian, I've got something to tell you. You're off to Washington. This wasn't the first time I'd had an unexpected call from Mark. Five years before, very early in the morning, on the last day of August, he'd woken me to say, David, I've got to tell you, Princess Diana is dead and you better come in. At the time, I was the BBC's broadcaster for big events, elections, state occasions, the millennium celebrations, that kind of thing, as well as doing my day job of politics. So I went straight to London and we put out a programme about Diana that night. And a week later, I was the commentator for the nine-hour coverage of her funeral, coverage that was broadcast right round the world. Silence from the mourners watching tears as it goes past. And Mark thinks it was this, rather than my political broadcasting, that had me flying to Washington in February 2003. He had been negotiating a BBC interview with one of the biggest names in the Bush administration. And I didn't specify any particular name, but I suspect I must have given a hatful of names. The names of possible interviewers. I mean, I had the feeling that they would have avoided Jeremy Paxman. Paxman, famous for his aggressive questioning and for showing his disdain for answers he didn't like by raising his eyebrows in incredulity. Is this some sort of joke? Do you ever wake up in the morning and think, my God, what am I going to be told today? And John Humphreys. The Welsh terrier of radio who'd get hold of a bone, the bone being the interviewee, and shake it. I suppose what I'm asking you really is, what's a bloke going to do in your job to get the sack? So who were they going to choose? They chose you. I never had the chance to interrogate why, but I have some strong intuitions. Uh, what, what are your intuitions? Well, I don't think that they were very religious watchers of Question Time, and they certainly hadn't seen some of the interviews you'd done with the big political beasts in the run-up to general elections. And I have it in mind that they thought of you as the royal weddings and royal funerals person. So if Mark's right, that's how I landed this key interview. They thought it would be an easy ride just because I did state events and funerals. Well, so be it. I was rubbing my hands with glee because the interview Mark had planned was with the Bush administration's most feared, most vicious attack dog. The man some people think of as the architect of the Iraq war. The man they call Rummy. The United States Secretary of Defense, Donald Henry Rumsfeld. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> Excuse me, but is this an unknown unknown? 
My view of political interviewing is that you always have to remember that you're asking questions on behalf of the audience who don't get the opportunity to do it. It doesn't matter how powerful your interviewee is, if you remember that your allegiance is to the public, you can't go far wrong. It's hard to emphasize how unsure everything felt at that moment. After all, there were people sitting at home who desperately wanted to know were we actually going to war with Iraq. Only two weeks earlier, a million of those people were taking to London streets, trying to tell the Prime Minister that Britain didn't want this war. Weapons inspectors were in Iraq at this very moment, searching for the elusive smoking gun, evidence that would prove Saddam was in possession of stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction. So here I was with an opportunity to interview someone who was helping construct US policy on Iraq, someone absolutely central to the presidency of George Bush. And many people at home thought that Tony Blair would blindly follow whatever George Bush was going to do. But what was he going to do? Here was my chance to find out. For the interview, we were sat very close together across a kind of coffee table, so close that our legs were almost touching. Does the uh, stepping up of attacks on Iraqi positions in the no-fly zone mean, in your view, that war is now pretty much inevitable? No, I don't see the connection, really. Uh, Rumsfeld more or less dodged the question, and this is how the interview went for a bit. Me asking, Rumsfeld dodging, and Mark in his little curtain space watching. The interview started fine um, in terms of their mood and tenor and the questioning. But as it went on, I started trying to tease out what was actually going to happen next. Well, I suppose anyone can... Uh, decide what they think is behind it and what motives are. Uh, the President of the United States... As we approached each of these contours of the interview, I mean, Rumsfeld just looked shocked and pained, uh, and the electricity went wanging up. It is not the job of the Secretary of Defense to be involved in those issues. I'm not. You keep saying you, but I suppose you mean you, the United States. No, I see you as part of the senior part of the administration as well. Well, as I am, sure. Indeed. But, but the job of a Secretary of Defense is quite different than making those judgments. Those judgments are judgments the President makes, and I work for the President, and I, and I happen to agree with his, his uh, statements, and, and I support him. Are people who want to defer war appeasers no, I've never used that word. I think these are Remember, Rumsfeld had been told not to expect difficult questions. And when we got onto the subject of why America had once supported Saddam Hussein, his tone suddenly became sharper. Accept, when you, when you, sorry, when you visited Iraq and negotiated with Saddam Hussein, when America wanted Saddam Hussein for its own purposes, America took Iraq off the list of terrorist states and indeed supplied it with the uh, wherewithal to make the chemical weapons they're now trying to... Remove. Well, I've read that type of thing, but I don't know where you get your information, and I don't believe it's correct. They may have been taken off the... I was a private businessman. Uh, and in my little cocooned black curtain space, I mean, you completely felt it, and I knew that there was rising fury in him, which he was able to control, but very, very tense. One, one last question. America is obviously having some difficulty in Europe getting support, and, and it was Some very difficulty? Wait a minute now. Hold on, hold on. The overwhelming the majority of the countries right. in Europe are supportive. All right. One of your key allies, the Spanish Prime Minister, Asnar, says, uh, we need a lot of Pau I saw that. and very little Rumsfeld. Yeah. Uh, are you saying things the rest of the administration 
won't speak out about. Are you, are you part of the problem of the United States getting the kind of backing it needs? Well, I doubt it. Uh, certainly the president doesn't think so. Uh, my words are very similar to what he says and what Colin Powell says. Mr. Rumsfeld, thank you very much. Thank you. It was really, really uh, memorably tense um, coming back into the big room. I remember he was rather curt at the end, is what I remember, and, 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 yeah. and sort of stormed out. I mean, thank, you know, thank you, that's it. He was out in a hurry, but said something. Uh, I wished I could remember what he said, but it was waspish and brief. Somebody said to me, uh, which I do remember very well, that's not the, that's not the way we do interviews here. We do here. things here. That's absolutely right. And then, and then came this moment, and this one I have. So this woman with whom I'd been dealing, who was professional, courteous, civilised, but when Rumsfeld left and I was left with her uh, and you were just beginning to uh, rearrange your suit and so on and so forth, she said to me, well, I think that's lost me my job. Well, I said, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. I hope that's not the case. I thought that was perfectly fair and he had plenty of time to put the case and not much more than that. I never finally found out what happened to her. I don't know. And she was shaken. I mean, I wasn't surprised because uh, having seen the interview in the little curtain space, I could see that from their point of view, it just wasn't what they had expected. And this was their one big moment. Uh, and from her point of view and her boss's point of view, i.e. Rumsfeld, there'd been a miscalculation. And that stuck with me and sticks with me to this day. But his memory of that press aid isn't the only thought that stuck with Mark. Both of us went into that interview trying to understand this one fundamental question. Are we going to war or aren't we? Before the interview, we really didn't quite know. We just weren't sure. But when we were packing up the gear, I said to you, David, um, I think it's war. And I think you said it's war. So any vestige of doubt that the Americans would pull back was, in my mind's eye, absolutely removed by this interview. And there was nothing that the UN either would or wouldn't do that would make a difference to the Americans' determination to get on with it and do it. It was just something in the air that day. It felt like there was an unstoppable force that had already been set in motion. The Brits aren't going to stop them. There's nothing the UN is going to do anything about it. There's nothing that Blix is going to do that's going to make them change their mind. They're just going to do it. And just two weeks later, Tony Blair and George Bush ordered their troops to cross the Rubicon. From CBS News headquarters in New York, here is Dan Rather. It was just overnight. On the 20th of March, 2003, at 5.34 a.m. Baghdad time, American, British, and coalition forces launched Operation Iraqi Freedom. The attack came in waves, cruise missiles, followed by the F-117 stealth bombers with so-called bunker-busting bombs. And at the center of the story of how we got here is the relationship between two men, a young politician on the left from Britain and a right-wing Republican 
from America's Texan heartland. Next time on The Fault Line, the Prime Minister meets the President. I found him extraordinarily informal, very, very straight and to the point, and very decisive. So, you know, when you're dealing with leaders at this level, the fact that you can have a relationship that's completely frank, open, honest, and you know you can trust the person on the other side, if he says he'll do something, he does it. That's the goal of international diplomacy. The Fault Line is a Something Else production. It's presented by me, David Dimbleby. Joe Sykes is the producer, with additional production from Jade Scott. Mixing and sound design comes from Evan Arnett and Will Short at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. And thank you to Dasha Lisitsina, Ali Adlington, Mira Sharma, Russell Finch, Carly Maley, Aaron Baker, Chris Blackley, Emma Lansdowne, Mark Rivers, and Steve Ackerman. And also thanks to the George W. Bush Presidential Library for the use of their archive. <laughs>